You're listening to How to Win Friends and Save the Republic, a podcast from the National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers. I'm your host, Andy Moore. My guest today is Benjamin Singer. Benjamin is originally from Missouri. He attended college at Northwestern University in Chicago, later lived in New York before returning to the Show Me State. Benjamin has worked with Republicans, Democrats, and independent reformers since 2012 on local, state, and federal advocacy campaigns to ensure a government of, by, and for the people, not extremists or special interests. He's worked on ethics campaign finance reform, redistricting, and various other electoral reforms with leaders across the spectrum, and including a stint as Director of Communications for the Clean Missouri Campaign in 2018, which was uh, an omnibus reform package that passed with 62% of the vote. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Benjamin's been featured on TV, radio, and newspaper outlets across the nation, so you may have seen him or recognize his voice. In 2020, he helped found a nonpartisan advocacy organization called Show Me Integrity, where he now serves as the CEO. Uh, they are working on some important uh, campaigns right now, uh, and uh, in fact, had one last year, Proposition D for Democracy, uh, in the city of St. Louis, which adopted open primaries using approval voting. It also passed with 62% of the vote. As we'll discuss in a few minutes, Show Me Integrity is working on a campaign for redistricting and ethics reform in St. Louis. Welcome to the show, Benjamin Singer. Andy, thank you so much for having us. So good to see you, my friend. Now, let's, uh, as we do with all of our guests, let's start at the beginning and find out your origin story, right? Uh, so did you grow up in St. Louis or was it somewhere else in Missouri? Well, they didn't find me in a cornfield in Iowa. So yes, I grew up in St. Louis County in Chesterfield. And, you know, it was a middle upper class suburb where I was. And, you know, every time we would um, go downtown to the city or, you know, other places, I would see people, um, you know, begging on the street or struggling to survive. And that touched me as a kid and had some later impacts on my life and the things I chose to do. Sure. Yeah. Growing up, um, was politics discussed in your home? Were your parents particularly political? It was not a particularly political house in the way that probably a lot of other people might have experienced. You know, we weren't dedicated Democrats or Republicans. I definitely learned to read the newspaper on a regular basis. We got the daily newspaper, as a lot of people, more people did back then uh, in print. And I think that was a good experience. And my mom would occasionally take me to um, protests. I, I'd say my parents definitely inculcated a strong distrust of authority <laughs> in me. Might have been pol the political part. I think my mom normally voted libertarian. Um, she had been the president of her college Republicans, but uh, we were not loyal partisans for sure. Sure. I think there's something interesting when I visit with with folks that are also from kind of the Midwest or the, you know, the central part of the country where for many of us, that includes me, we grew up where politics and religion were not proper discussion topics, right? You weren't supposed to talk about those things. And I, I, I think I relate to you that, you know, my parents have 
shared stories about their younger years when maybe they were more overtly political. But for most of my life, that was just not a thing, right? Like I knew that they voted, um, but it was not discussed in our home. Uh, so uh, you graduated high school, went on to Northwestern University in Chicago, and you studied not only political science, but also radio, TV, and film. Did you have like a clear idea of what you wanted to do for a career when you were in college? To some degree, I certainly didn't predict this, but I had a friend, Randy, in high school who would make videos. He'd make movies, narrative form movies, not documentaries or anything. And I remember our friends gathering around to watch Randy's latest creation on, you know, the old like CRT monitor in the theater room in high school. And the power of media to capture people's imagination and attention, I realized that is an important platform for social change. So I wanted to make sure that I was familiar with um, the tools, not only what the problems are and what needs to be accomplished, but a method of potentially accomplishing them. That's fascinating. So you knew you wanted to do something with media, but not necessarily with politics in mind. Um, given the the shift in, well, how I think important media has become, particularly in the last, you know, five years, 10 years, um, where media is front and center, um, do you feel a little clairvoyant in, <laughs> in getting a, a degrees in, in topics that are so intimately interwoven today? I wouldn't give myself that much credit, but I appreciate you trying to lob a very generous softball my way. You know, this was in the mid 2000s, I would say. I'm 33. So at that time, I think Michael Moore was already kind of a phenomenon. And, you know, I felt his tactics were, you know, a little heavy handed and, you know, obviously extreme. But I think it was already clear that politics and media were a potent combination. Now, you know, I have had issues with politics for a long time. I hate politics, which is why I want to fix it. Um, but I care about people and I care about building a better world. And that's why I do reform, because at some point I saw everything I cared about going backwards. Not only were we not moving forwards, but things were getting worse. And that's when I had to dive in and not just get involved in a broken system, but get involved to reform a broken system. Yeah, that is a, a sentiment that I'm certain many of our listeners can relate. Yeah. Now, before we started recording, we were just chatting and you mentioned that there's been a, a thread through your childhood, your education and into your career that has in some ways led you to where you are now. Uh, and that that thread deals with working with people who are unhoused or the homeless populations. Can you tell us a little bit about what that journey has been like and how that, how that leads you to where you are today? Sure. So, and I apologize if I get uh, emotional at any point, I will try not to, but especially you know, the phone calls I was on today with our ballot initiatives and things, I'm just, I'm amped up. Sure. So as I mentioned, you know, growing up upper middle class, you know, I would, 
you know, my family would go, you know, to baseball games downtown, or we would travel to other cities. And I would all, often see these people, like I mentioned, struggling to survive on the street, begging or selling whatever they had, playing the trumpet, whatever. And I'm, you know, whatever, six years old, and I've never done anything for anybody. And I get to go to bed, you know, go to sleep in a warm bed every night. And it just didn't feel fair. Um, and my, like I said, my family wasn't like, bleeding heart liberals. This is just coming from a, a sense of seeing human suffering and responding to that. Um, and, you know, I do come from a religious background as well. So that has probably played a significant role in it too. So in college, I studied radio, TV, film, and politics, like you said, and political science. And at one, I made a couple of movies, um, one documentary, one not kind of telling the stories of people who were struggling through homelessness and other related issues, just through their own eyes, not with like political experts. We actually did interview some members of Congress and other things. We ended up cutting those out because I felt like the human stories spoke for themselves in a much more powerful and interesting way. So after college, I worked for the largest provider of homeless services in the state of Illinois, which was actually founded by two conservatives who'd been successful in finance in Chicago. They'd both grown up, you know, lower middle class, but had been successful and they were giving back, but it was also a bit of a personal thing for them and also a business opportunity because the husband of this husband and wife duo had, was a recovering alcoholic. And they realized if they hadn't been well off, then with all the struggles he had uh, with, you know, needing to take time off work to go to rehab and stuff like that, they would have been homeless. And so they saw an opportunity. There's a lot of people coming out of prison who struggle to get jobs and get back on their feet. So what if they started halfway houses and job training programs and help people get on their feet, gave them their first jobs, gave them their first housing, so that then future landlords and future employers would be more likely to hire them. And this would reduce the number of people going back to prison, the number of kids in foster care, save taxpayers millions of dollars. And they did it, and they built it over time, and it worked. And a tremendously successful, great place to work, you know, for me managing their communications, which I did after college, after they had been featured in this documentary, but then politics happened and the state of Illinois wasn't paying its bills. And yeah, I'm from Missouri and I work in Missouri, but I think telling the story of what happened in Illinois is interesting because I've seen the dynamics play out in a similar ways on both sides of the river in a democratic dominated state and in a Republican now dominated state. So Illinois was struggling with its finances, was defunding services that were lifting people successfully out of poverty, although certainly not all agencies were as successful as, as we were. Some don't necessarily deliver the results. And so they raised taxes in Illinois. They raised the state tax on everyone, flat tax, to supposedly to keep funding human services. But instead, they defunded human services and gave an $80 million annual tax break to the Mercantile Exchange, the Stock Exchange, which had just donated $200,000 to the leading candidate for mayor that year, right before campaign finance limits went into effect on January 1. And as I later found out, 
gives millions of dollars to politicians on both sides of the aisle, local, state, and federal. And anytime I tell this story, it doesn't surprise anyone because we all know instinctively and from seeing the news that this is how politics is broken. It doesn't work. Those who have access and money and power and relationships get the favors and those who don't like people trying to get back on their feet out of poverty don't get that help and it's, it's not a it's not a free market it's not personal responsibility it's corruption so and like i said i was working for conservative leaders so and so that's part of why i tell this story we're you know conservatives in a blue state trying to fight to help people get out of poverty and out of homelessness and out of the criminal justice system and running into the corruption of our political system. And same thing happens in any state that you're in, but it certainly helped and decreased in places that have effective campaign finance reform. And so for me, as my career unfolded, working for state and national reform movements, seeing the power at state levels and local levels to be driving that change, like every successful socio-political movement in American history, we have to be doing it at local and state levels um, because that's how we're going to get that federal change. And we need more states that have good systems in place, not like Illinois has. And Illinois doesn't have a ballot initiative. And that's something that really made me appreciate coming back home to Missouri, but I'm sure we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> yeah, man. So a, a $200,000 donation resulted in a $80 million tax credit. That's a hell of a return on investment for them. Yeah, right? It, right. And represent us, as you know, has great videos about that return on investment. And unfortunately, right, it's about incentives. And when that kind of thing is legal, why wouldn't you invest in that return on investment when you know others have the ability to do so and resources are you know, theoretically limited. So, yeah. And then, you know, since you asked about homelessness, it definitely hit home because um, one of my close family members um, ended up homeless a couple of years ago uh, while I'm in the midst of all this reform work um, through mental illness and other things. And so it felt very full circle and, you know, it's a, um, sad but helpful reminder that this work is very important yeah well and you know what strikes me from that very powerful story is that while i think it is um i think some folks too easily dismiss electoral political reform as a academic exercise um when it's it's not i mean it 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 genuinely changes the incentives which changes how the system works, and that affects people's lives. A strong case, so I, but I should mention it here. For me, it showed that corruption in politics, like you're saying, it's a life and death issue. We were helping men who'd been living in their cars, women who'd been living in abandoned buildings in incredibly compromised situations, and we could no longer help these people get out of those situations and stop being dependent on public services and be proud, healthy, happy, contributing, taxpaying members of society. Um, we could no longer do that. And it was literally a life and death issue for thousands and thousands of people and a very expensive issue for taxpayers. So no matter what way you look at it, it's really affecting 
people's lives in the deepest possible way. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is it is no surprise then, given your history, that you have worked in organizations with words in their names like common, clean, and integrity. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the opposite of of maybe the experience you had then. Uh, and, and so, I'd like to talk a little bit about what your experiences have been that led you to where you are. Um, briefly, I know that you were. Uh, spent some time at Common Cause there in Chicago uh, when you were there. Could you tell us just a little bit about what that experience was about? Sure. I came to that the same year that I had been doing the homelessness work in Illinois. And I started as a volunteer helping pass a local measure, doing you know some communications work for a local volunteer-led campaign to get Chicago to pass a measure, an advisory ballot initiative in support of an amendment to reverse Citizens United. Sorry, I'm going back to 2012 in my head here. So pardon me while I think no one has <laughs> asked me this level of detail about it in a while. Um, so I started as a volunteer, but I knew it was what I wanted to do after having tried to stay away from politics, but seeing how everything I cared about was going backwards, including, you know, homelessness and poverty and wanting to do something about it. So I raised the money for Common Cause to hire me to help manage a statewide campaign. Um, again, passing a resolution statewide calling for a constitutional amendment, making Illinois the 15th state, I believe we were, to call for an amendment reversing Citizens United versus FEC. Because at that moment in time, people were starting to talk about money and politics and campaign finance reform a lot more right after the Citizens United decision. But campaign finance reform, obviously, like many people, was something I'd thought about theoretically, kind of like you said, academic exercise. Like, yeah, that would be nice. You know, that's definitely an ideal world less corruption, more integrity. But this was an opportunity where it's in the headlines, people are talking about it, and I've just seen the effects that it has on people as a life and death issue. This is my moment to get involved and actually help do something. So it was a beautiful experience as the first uh, political or grassroots effort that I led because we had these volunteers all over the state, you know, fired up and ready to go post Citizens United. And it was uh, bipartisan. You know, I wanted to make sure if we're going to be successful across the country, this needs to be a cross-partisan effort. So we targeted uh, legislators on both sides of the aisle with, you know, phone banking, inviting them to speak at rallies, going and meeting with them in their offices. And sure enough, we got bipartisan co-sponsorship and support and super majorities in both the Illinois House and the Illinois Senate by meeting people where they are, you know, and that's what I think community organizing today, what a lot of what you see seems to sometimes have lost that community organizing is about meeting people where they are, mm -hmm. talking to a Republican or a Democrat, or conservative, moderate, progressive, based on the values that you share and the interests that you share, um, and not just demonizing people because you don't agree with them on 100% of the issues. So it's very fulfilling to see these ideals play out in real life. And of course, it was an advisory measure. 
it's a great organizing opportunity to build that political will and this multi-generational probably effort to reverse Citizens United. Um, but for me, as a young reformer, it was a beautiful and inspiring and empowering experience to be part of. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after a word from some of our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by IVN.us, an open news platform for independent-minded authors and readers. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to IVN.us where you listen to podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or iHeartRadio. Hey there, How to Win friends, listeners. It's Jillian Youngblood from The Purple Principle. Ever wonder how our country got so polarized? The rise of television news, the rise of social media, every single force is pushing us apart. How do we become less polarized? And this is a controversial one, is try to unblock people. And can independent-minded Americans bridge the divide? I think that there's value to having folks like me outside of the parties. Pull back the curtain on partisanship with The Purple Principle, wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, and now back to the show. Let's talk about clean Missouri for a little bit. Now, when I started working on redistricting reform here in Oklahoma, where I am, in early 2019, there was still a lot of buzz about the clean Missouri campaign, which was not just because uh, we're bordering states, but because anyone... Uh, any campaign that passes big sweeping reforms in the middle of the country, you know, red state uh, is, I think, exciting to a lot of folks because we've seen those things be successful in maybe the coasts where, you know, as we mentioned early in the episode, maybe folks are more uh, inclined towards overt politics, right, in some of those states than they are uh, here in the middle of the country. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Clean Missouri campaign, can you give us a brief overview of what that policy was actually all about? Sure. It's interesting, the dynamics, like you say, because I do think people on the coasts or more um, liberal states, as you know, look down on some of the rest of the country. And Missouri is a populist state. And I mean that in some of the best, uh, the best meanings of the word. I know populism has kind of a bad rap among some people post Donald Trump or in the Donald Trump era, I guess we're sort of still in right now. But populism in terms of wanting politics to work for the people believing, as Lincoln said, in a government of by and for the people. Um, and that shouldn't be so much to ask. So yeah, clean Missouri was very populist campaign. We were saying that it's time to stop the big money, powerful lobbyists and partisan games and give power back to the people. And that included campaign contribution limits, because we were coming, coming out of an era where Missouri's campaign contribution limits had been repealed. And then right before we launched the campaign, some new limits went into effect. So that part of the measure still decreased campaign contribution limits, but not as much. Increased the sunshine law, increased transparency requirements for legislators. It banned fundraising on state property. So you can't be in the Capitol saying, oh yeah, I might be interested in supporting that bill. By the way, I have a fundraiser tonight across the street. No more. It also uh, required fair and competitive redistricting. 
meaning that no political party should get an unfair advantage when the maps are drawn every 10 years for the state legislature specifically. The whole package, the single subject was decreasing partisan and other special interests in the state legislature. And then closing the revolving door, you know, two year minimum, a legislator can't just turn around and become a lobbyist um, lobbying their recent colleagues. So it was a comprehensive reform package that we were very proud of, and it passed with 62%, like you mentioned, with a majority in all 34 state Senate districts across the state. Yeah, I mean, 62% is a, a, a landslide by today's standards, right? Um, particularly when you were going up against institutional power in this way. Uh, now, almost immediately after the the victory, there began to be a lot of pushback, right? And, and efforts from that um, institutional power, from the politicians to try to unravel some of this policy. Um, and I know that that obviously began during the campaign, but there's been a, a targeted effort after that. And I know you left the organization after the campaign ended, but could you tell us a little bit about um, what that, uh, that opposition has looked like? Sure. Mostly some legislators in Jefferson City who didn't like that we were going to take power out of the hands of party-appointed politicos to be drawing the maps and, you know, putting data and criteria first that would require keeping, you know, rural towns together and requiring more fairness and competitiveness so that especially in the suburbs where you can draw either safe blue and safe red districts, or you could draw more competitive districts without changing the other criteria that we would have more competition. And whether you're Democrat or Republican, you're going to be held more accountable to all the voters in your district, not just the voters in that party's primary. Um, because, you know, this country wasn't founded on government of, by, and for Democrats or Republicans. That's right. I, I mean, I, uh, earlier this morning was watching the, the recent interview that Andrew Yang did with Nick Troiano from Unite America on his uh, Yang Speaks. I guess it's a podcast. I was watching the YouTube video of it. Uh, and they were talking about, well, what our founding fathers said about parties and their concerns about the nation devolving into these warring factions of two parties. Um, and, and Yang highlighted, which sounds like something he had just recently learned uh, or during his presidential bid that, you know, as it turns out, the Republicans back then were a northern party that was anti-slavery. And then there was the Democratic Republicans um, that were more in the South and how even the labels that we use today have switched, right, and and changed, and and in in our redistricting policy that we had proposed in Oklahoma, you know, we intentionally did not include the names of any political parties. We just said the state's largest party, next largest party, and everybody else. And even that, uh, there's a lot of consternation, right? Because well, what if you know, what if we had five parties mm -hmm. and they were much more equal in uh, in their membership, right? And that hasn't been the case for most of American history, but that doesn't mean that it won't be the case in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years. And and so I think there's a responsibility, right, to all of us in the reform community to think about how do we 
not just fix the most pressing problem today um, with a quick fix it's an easy win that's immediate though there is some value to that but also how do we make sure that we are not inadvertently kicking the can down the road or creating a new problem that we'll have to address with the same amount of effort you know in in two decades when we can maybe fix it the best right going forward right and that's definitely a challenge we face in missouri too and you know we're we're idealists and we're also pragmatists at show me integrity so and we know there's a huge range of reform options out there some that are achievable now and some that might you know take a little bit more time to organize and educate and fundraise for and so when we write you know these initiatives for local and state levels we think well, it'd be really nice in the future to have this other reform. So how can we write language into this that will allow for that to take place even statutorily if we're talking about a constitutional or a charter change? But it's really difficult to write um, good policy now that then is open to that later. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a challenge we have to take on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk uh, about where you are currently. So after the Clean Missouri campaign, um, you helped launch Show Me Integrity. I think I said in 2020 earlier, but it was really before that. It was in 2019, right? Yeah, we, well, we held our first organizing meeting one month after winning the Clean Missouri campaign because few of us who'd been involved across the spectrum saw this was awesome. We just won this huge, powerful campaign because we worked together across party lines. And we need to keep doing this because there's a lot of problems with representative democracy in Missouri that need to get fixed, that we can all agree on as voters, maybe not some elected officials, but the voters are on the same page. So Rob Schaff, the son of the former Senator, conservative Republican, former Senator Rob Schaff, um, myself, Rod Chappell, the president of the state NAACP, I think Rod's openly, you know, much more progressive. And then um, Amy Cordes and later Eric Bronner were the founding board members of Show Me Integrity and Show Me Integrity Education Fund. Amy is a you know volunteer, um, philanthropist, and activist. Uh, and then Eric is a military veteran and a proud independent. And the co-founder now, or the founder of Veterans for Political Innovation. So wonderful group, people across the spectrum coming together wholeheartedly with integrity and love for our shared mission of Lincoln's vision of government of by and for the people. Yeah, that's funny. I, I actually have a meeting scheduled with Eric next week, and we will have him hopefully on a future episode of this podcast to talk about his new organization that is uh, focused on uh, uniting veterans for political reform. That's great. So, Eric's wonderful. Yeah, that's what I've heard. That's well, I'm excited about it myself. Uh, so what uh, we mentioned earlier that you guys had had won a reform last year in 2020 mm -hmm. um, for some reforms there in in St. Louis. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you are focused on currently? Absolutely. So we have another measure on the ballot for next year for redistricting and ethics reform locally in the city of St. Louis. And it's a comprehensive conflict of interest reform package is very popular. We're polling at 80%. So anything that's a conflict of interest at the Board of Aldermen, we are banning. And the Board of Aldermen is what we call our local city council. It's a city charter from another era. 
so which is part of the problem so it will not allow aldermen to vote or to take or prevent official action if they have a personal or financial conflict of interest or if a close family member of theirs does so they'll have to recuse themselves from any measure uh, and not not like i said take or prevent official action that also translates to redistricting currently they draw their own ward lines and that didn't feel right especially because the number of wards in st louis is set to go down from a previous initiative or referendum down from 28 wards to 14 wards and so it's a recipe for playing a lot of political games when you're totally redoing the map and the people who are doing it are in charge of the board and able to pick who their colleagues are going to be and who's going to be able to more easily get reelected. And they're breaking up neighborhoods. As one of our allies, Alderwoman Christine Ingracia, who actually had introduced this redistricting bill that the redistricting portion of this was based on, she represent her ward represents parts of nine neighborhoods, but none of them in their entirety. So that makes it harder for neighborhoods to advocate for their needs in City Hall and makes it harder for all, you know, well-meaning older persons to actually advocate for those needs because you're always having to navigate with multiple elected officials and multiple neighborhood organizations. And it's, it's, there's no need for it. In a city the size of St. Louis, where you're talking about 28 or 14 wards and 77 uh, or a, a larger number of neighborhoods, there's no need to be dividing up neighborhoods that way. So we put together a measure that's very popular and it will also prevent the Board of Aldermen from unilaterally repealing the measure that we passed last year, the approval voting and runoff measure, because that's also a conflict of interest to be overriding the will of the people on something having to do with how you are elected. That's also not right. And so as you can see, it's a pretty common sense initiative. That's why we're pulling at 80%. It's popular all across the city, across political lines, racial lines, geographic lines. So we're very proud of it and excited to go win another campaign for the people. Yeah, that's really exciting. Uh, Benjamin, if listeners are interested in learning more about Show Me Integrity uh, and about your campaign or getting involved or even, you know, perhaps supporting the organization, throwing a few nickels your way, what's the best way to, to get a hold of you all? Absolutely. We are at showmeintegrity.org. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Show Me Integrity. We're bringing on new communications staff soon. So we'll be putting it, we're very proud of the content we have out there already, and there'll be more soon as well. I should also mention, we're exploring some other campaigns, including Honest Elections, a voucher system at uh, other levels of government, uh, as well as more voting reform, more approval voting, ranked choice voting, nonpartisan elections, runoffs, to try to make government work for the people. And we're exploring these things at all levels of government, because as you know, our constitution gives our state, you know, our federal constitution gives states the ability to decide how we run our elections and how we elect our people, including our federal officials. So we're very excited for what the future holds. And we invite everyone to get involved with us at showmeintegrity.org. Excellent. Thanks so much. Benjamin, it's been great visiting with you today. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. My guest today has been Benjamin Singer with Show Me Integrity. 
As he said, you can learn more about the organization and how to support them at showmeintegrity.org. Thanks for listening to How to Win Friends and Save the Republic. This podcast is a program of the National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers. For more information about our organization and how you can join, please visit our website at nonpartisanreformers.org. Thank you.